All right, we are so glad that you are here. Hey, we are in a state of flux. You can probably feel that. The stage is partly put together. We are anticipating and have been moving some redesign efforts towards actually next Sunday. Next Sunday is a big deal. Like Stephen mentioned, he kind of snuck it in there. We have two services starting next Sunday. So if you didn't know that, 9 and 1045, you got to pick one, you know, and somehow talk amongst yourselves, figure it out, make it even. So that's, that's the best way for us to do that. So 9 and 1045, but, but we can't wait to have uh, two services in this place. That's going to be super exciting. Hey, I was uh, on my news feed this past week, and you might have seen this story uh, there was um, a Nigerian man with the last name of Friday, and he is in the country of Nigeria, and he actually, for just reasons of total unrest within his nation, was fleeing the nation and trying to get out of there and actually get on a boat to head to Europe. And he was doing that illegally, and he had a friend who had a boat who kind of motored him up along the side of this massive cargo tanker and helped him to climb up onto the rudder of this boat. And that's what he did. He climbed up onto the rudder of this boat. And to his surprise, there were three other Nigerians huddled in the dark under the cloak of darkness on top of this metal rudder in the back of the boat where they wouldn't be noticed. And he was fearful at first that maybe they would throw him over, but they didn't throw him over. And they stayed huddled together and headed off on this trip to Europe. They got on the boat with a little bit of food, a little bit of water, heading to Europe. There was only one problem. The boat wasn't bound for Europe at all. In fact, they would spend not a handful of days, but the next 14 days on the rudder of this boat, running out of food, running out of water, sitting on a piece of metal right above sharks, whales that they saw, and they would head across, this just happened, the entire Atlantic Ocean. And when found by, I think like a local Coast Guard came up, saw men on the back of the boat, they came up to him and they said, where are we? You're in Brazil. <laughs> Here's a picture of these dudes who they found can, across the entire Atlantic Ocean. They roped themselves together could barely sleep trying to not fall off that drinking salt water at the very end because they were out of everything. And one last picture just shows them as they were literally handing them water, had lived like that for two full weeks. This story makes me think of our passage because many people are heading on a path that they are confident will head one direction. They're convinced. They're as convinced as Friday was I'm heading to Europe when, in fact, they, at the end of a journey, will be shocked to learn they've arrived at a very different place. We enter into the last week of Malachi to see this prophet crying out to the righteous and the wicked and telling them that there are two directions they're all heading. One big shocker, the wicked think they're righteous. In fact, one of the most profound things about self-deception is we always think God's talking about someone else in the room. And it's actually those who are wicked who think they're righteous and the message is flying right over their heads. God has something he wants to say to us this morning. There are two groups of people in the room, and it's not men and women and Republicans and Democrats and however else you could divide the room. 
It is the righteous and the wicked, and we all begin wicked. How will we hear from God this morning and end up not on the boat that we think is going one direction, but go a different direction altogether? Let's open up. If you've got a Bible, open up to Malachi. We're at the end of chapter 3. End of chapter 3, and if, if you want a little bit of a roadmap, a mental roadmap of where we're going, we are going to see that God is going to um, speak to these two groups of people. These paths are leading to places, and he is going to first address the wicked, then he will address the righteous, then he will talk about a judgment to come before he gives some closing words. That's where we're going. And first, like I said, he addresses the wicked. Malachi 3, verse 13 this is what the Lord says. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. All right, let me pause there. Let's just talk about the wicked. This is all about the wicked right now. And the first thing they say is, um, God is saying, your words against me are harsh, but they respond with, what have we spoken against you? This is so typical of the wicked all throughout the book of Malachi. For example, chapter one, verse two, God says, I have loved you. And their response, how have you loved us? Chapter one, verse six, you despise my name. And they ask, how have we despised your name? <laughs> Keeps going. 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? Chapter 3, verse 8, you are robbing me. How do we rob God? Like again and again and again, the wicked have a habit of talking back to God. The wicked have a habit of thinking God's always talking about someone else. On and on it goes. God actually corrected them seven times, and they keep speaking back. It's almost like seniors in high school. They know everything. You live through that? You remember that? I was that guy, that senior in high school that realized, what do my parents know? I am omniscient. Does that mean I know everything? I probably do. You know, like, we go through that season, and the wicked are like that. They are always right. There's three things we're going to learn about the wicked just from these few verses. Number one, the wicked are always right. They're always right. Now, they're not, but they think they are. They're never wrong. As soon as God shows them their faults, they immediately swing around and show God how he's wrong about them thinking wrongly. And I just thought, do you regularly talk back to God? I have made it through the whole book of Malachi thinking this doesn't apply to me. That's not me. I mean, I never said so. I have never heard God's voice and then talked right back to him. But I bet it didn't happen like that for them either. I bet it wasn't just like a voice in the sky where God says something. They immediately yell back at the sky and yell back at God. No, God actually, the way he gets a hold of me, the way he probably got a hold of them is if not the Bible, he uses people. You ever notice that? God uses people to bring correction into our lives. And here's the reality. When they talked back to Malachi, they were talking back to the one for whom Malachi spoke. When that dawned on me in a time of prayer this week over this passage, it cut me to the heart. 
because I realize that God is oftentimes trying to correct me, not merely just through the Bible, but my wife, my kids, friends who know me. And when I talk back to them, who am I talking back to? God who is using them to bring love and correction in my life. See, I just forever thought, oh, it's the wicked who do stuff like that. And I go, I know by the grace of Jesus, he has called me righteous, but I am like this at times. Forever talking back, forever so quick to tell people how actually they see it wrong. They're wrong, I'm right. Are you like me at times? I'm telling you, that marks the wicked. They are always right, always right. Number two, the wicked find that serving God is a huge burden. Look with me again at verse 14. The wicked say, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements? The wicked are a group of people who look very religious. They go through the motions. They fit into the crowd. They go to church, even back then. They're trying to keep God's requirements, but in their hearts, they don't want to. It's a burden to serve God. Like if you just peel back the layers, they don't really want God. They're just going through the motions. They don't know that they are the wicked. They just think, oh, man, it's a burden to serve this God. It's useless keeping his requirements. They feel they're always right. They feel like serving God is a burden. And lastly, look at this. They think that the wicked have it better. Do you see verse 15? Malachi writes, so now we consider, and this is the wicked speaking, now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. Like the wicked are looking, (laughs) they're the wicked, thinking they're righteous, looking at the wicked and going, they get away with everything. I mean, they get away with everything. They have it good. They have it good. It's really tempting to think that the wicked have it better. It's, it's like Satan is a deceiver, and, and sin is deceptive. In fact, we are regularly deceived by sin. Look at this verse from Hebrews 3, verse 13. It just talks about the deceiving nature of sin. The author of Hebrew wrote, writes, um, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Hardened by sin's deception. Sin is almost like this animated force, like Satan just using it, and it deceives. Sin is always deceiving. Always deceiving. It's a deceiver. It's always whispering in our ears. Like a commercial on TV, sin is always over-promising and under-delivering. And the wicked are so thoroughly deceived, they, they actually think they're righteous and that we're talking about someone else. Guys, self-deception at its heart whispers this. This isn't about you. This is about someone else. Someone else needs to listen to what's going on in this room right now. Someone else should be hearing this. Could it be us? Could it be us? The wicked have said they're always right, that serving God is a burden, and the wicked think that the wicked have it better. That that God would just be out to steal my joy, take away happiness. Ah, I wish I was not following God. But now, in stark contrast to the wicked, God is going to zoom in on the righteous. Man, Malachi, for like 
three chapters now, it's almost been like we've been held underwater because there's been so much correction. Now, this glimmer of hope, this bright shining star, because even when a lot of God's people are maybe going the wrong direction, there always seems to be a remnant, always seems to be some who are like fully going hard after God. Look at how now the spotlight shifts from the wicked to the righteous, and look at the description we get of them. Start with me in verse 16. Here's the path of the righteous. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. It starts off with saying those who feared the Lord, they're speaking to one another, and then the Lord took notice and listened. It's, it's like down on earth, the righteous, they're speaking, they're, they're huddled together, they're talking. Maybe they're in a prayer meeting, they're just talking back and forth, talking back and forth. And the Lord's up in heaven, he's like, ah, you see that? Look at that. He, he takes notice, he listens. God, they caught his attention. Something caught the attention of God. And what was it? Just this group of righteous men and women just huddled together. The Lord took notice and he listened. And you see that a, a book of remembrance was written now. It's like, write their names down. You know, maybe he yelled to Gabriel or Michael the archangel, hey, get some paper, write them down, right? Guess don't we love being noticed? Just in general, don't we love being noticed? I've noticed little kids love being noticed. If you tell kids to make a straight line at the door, when finally one of them listens, and just gets there and stands up straight and quiet, and the teacher goes, Ah, look at little Jimmy standing up straight as a straight as a tree and oh so quiet. What did the other kids do? <gasps> they go running behind him. <clears throat> they want to be noticed as well. Little kids love to be noticed. I have noticed that college women love to be noticed. I'm just saying. Like, come on. You know, when they're in that crowd and some gals are together and someone says, oh, Did you know? That guy over there, he's been looking at you. He's been looking at you all night. You know, like just that excitement of being noticed with that one. Guys, it is, I love being noticed. I remember going through like high school, early in high school. Guess what? I got invited to be because people noticed me. I got invited to be a natural helper. You don't know what that means. A natural helper. Some of my friends put my name in. Thought, He's really good at talking with people, like when they're going through problems. Like, he should be nominated to be a natural helper. I went away on a retreat. I, I'm like a counselor, basically. You know, They didn't know how bad I was actually at this. But for just a little moment of my life, some people noticed me and thought, I think he would do a good job of that. What, me? All right, I'll give it my best. Well, it didn't last long, but... We love being noticed, all of us. God's taking notice of some. God notices some. He's like, look at, write it down. What is it about these righteous that draws the attention of God? I, I saw three things as I looked at it. Look at this, the first one. They fear the Lord. 
Do you see that in that verse? Verse 16, these are the ones who fear the Lord. It took notice, listen, they feared the Lord. It says it again. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. As best as I understand the fear of the Lord, it's this, that moment by moment, you realize that you walk and talk and think and live in the active presence of a holy God. He's not locked in the Hillel on Sundays where we come and visit him and sing songs to him and then go do whatever we want. No, he is with us moment by moment. You have never been alone. Moment by moment, you and I walk in the presence of a holy God. Those who fear the Lord recognize that and their behavior changes because of it. It's like this. If all of a sudden T. Swift just walked into this room, right, and just sat down next to some college gal, like just, just sat down, like, oh, is this seat taken? Oh, no, that's it. <clears throat> you know, like we would begin to act a little bit different towards her, right? I mean, you, you might just be like, oh, I'm just kind of reading the passage for the, you know, you know, like, you would try and sneak a selfie. You would be like, it's Taylor Swift. I'm sitting next to her. Like, we begin to act differently around those we esteem. We act differently. We, college guys, you take a gal out on a date, I guarantee you, you will behave differently if her dad comes along and sits in the back seat the whole time. <laughs> just go about your own business. I'll just be back here on my phone. You would be like, both hands on the wheel, 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, driving straight as an arrow. Speed pegged on the speed limit, right? <laughs> to fear the Lord is to live like you're in the presence of a great and awesome God. Changes your behavior. And they recognize God's watching, and I care. I want to please him. I fear the Lord. They fear the Lord, and number two, they have high regard for his name. That's what it says. They fear the Lord, and they have high regard for his name. Do you remember the point of Malachi's book? We found it in Malachi 1.11. This will be up on the screens. You can flip to it as well. Malachi 1.11, God says, For my name will be great among the nations, from the rising of the sun to its setting, Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. God is saying, my name is great and it will be made great, made awesome, made beautiful, made glorious among the nations. God is a great God. He deserves to be worshiped by every language, every tongue, every tribe of all times. God is awesome. He is great. He deserves to be worshiped as great. And those who feared the Lord also had high regard for his name. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Only that's a verb we don't use. Oh, hallowed. Used it three times last week. No, no one knows what it means. Your name be honored as holy. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth, he's like, you want to learn how to pray? Let me tell you. Prayer request number one that God's name would be honored as holy. Sounds abstract. Oh, that we would live in such a way that we give God a good reputation. See, there's a connection between those who call themselves Christian and what people think of when they hear about Christ. Your name be honored as holy. God, make your name great. Look, having high regard for God's name means that you're less concerned with how many followers you have and you're more concerned with how many followers he has. You care. You care about what comes to people's minds when they think of 
Jesus Christ. And you live accordingly. You care about this deeply. Your singular focus is not your reputation, but his, his fame, his glory, his renown. That's what gets you. That's what you care deeply about. Well, the righteous, they fear God. They have high regard for his name. And here's the third thing. They're noticed by the Lord. They're noticed by God. Did you see that? God notices his people on his mission. He's saying, write their names down. Like he is keeping a journal. Isn't that awesome? God's excited about this. See, I think he sees James and Carlene when all of a sudden they stay up so late (laughs) that they drive to an airport to pick up an international student, one of the 6,000 of 60,000 students coming to this campus who's brand new to this nation. And yet somehow they make it here in the morning and this student lives with them for the next week of their life. I think God's like, write that down. Write that down. I think you know this is David Kim, who right now sits in the crowd, but you know what, on other weeks, he is back there making every lyric right work, getting up early, doing his best. You can't face him. You can talk to him, say, David, 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 and he'll just click, click, click. He is a machine doing his best. I think God notices people like the, the woman who's a medical professional who I talked to just yesterday, who's spread really thin, giving herself to so many ministers. I said, you should do less. You should stop. And she goes, who will do it if I don't? So, well, more will have to get raised up to do the work. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing awesome. Like, God is taking notice of students and community and people who are like, I'm serving. I am in. They serve God, which the best I know about to serve God isn't just like, how do I get that job description? It's to serve his people, to serve his mission. They're literally giving their time during the week, their talents, their abilities, their treasures, their finances, like they are putting the church, the bride of Christ, first. God was even saying to them back then, before the church was an idea, the people of Israel, he's like, serve me. He is taking notice of that. How's God gonna respond to them? He will say this, they will be mine, and I'll have compassion on them. God just claims his people. They'll be mine, mine. I remember my father-in-law, before Jenny and I were even engaged, he goes, Paul, and this could be a little controversial, but this is what he said to me. He goes, a woman wants to be claimed. He goes, you're just not saying you're dating her, not saying you're dating her, but everyone knows you're dating her. Like, claim her. Say, I want you to be mine. Will you be mine? Like God says, there's people, and I'm saying, they're mine, and I'm going to have compassion on them. Oh, it's worth the path of the righteous. Though, like Ben shared leading worship this morning, it's hard. It's challenging. It's really hard at times. It's worth it. God's taking notice. God's taking notice of your sacrifices. He's writing it down. You're going to be mine. I will show you compassion. Oh. I said, you know, earlier I've said before that paths lead to places. Malachi has talked about the wicked. He has talked about the righteous. And now he's going to talk about where their paths lead. And that is to a judgment to both. Look with me now at chapter 4 as we look at God's promised judgment and reward. I'm going to read the first three verses. Malachi 4, 1. 
For look, the day is coming, the day, burning like a furnace when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. That, that's sort of the worthless part, not the grain, but the stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord. So now, Malachi directs his audience to the future day of the Lord. And like even Josiah preached about a couple weeks ago, it's hard sometimes when the prophet's speaking, which coming of Christ is he referring to? The first coming of Jesus, the day when God breaks in through the, the birth of his son, or the second coming of Jesus? We're gonna see actually both in view in these closing six verses, kind of a toggling back and forth between the first coming of Christ, that is the coming of Jesus, and then the second coming, the day that is yet to come when he will bring his final judgment. So here he's talking about that, that final judgment, the day of judgment is coming, look at this, burning like a furnace. This is not the refiner's fire that's being used to talk about like, oh, like every Christian, all the righteous, we're constantly being refined more and more into the image of God. That's not this. That is true, God's doing that among the righteous. No, this is the fire of judgment. The idea of stubble being burned up is something, it's the worthless part of the grain, right? You, you hold on to the grain and, and you cast out the, the stubble and it gets burned up. It, it, God is not making this point that some people are right, you know, worthwhile and some people are not worthwhile. No, he's saying that there is a judgment coming for those who don't turn to him. They will become like stubble. And then it says even roots and branches are getting burned up. And I thought about that. You know, Maui right now is just a blaze. Well, it just was, right? You've seen that in the news. 50-some people dead. I mean, just wildfires going across Hawaii. And it, even in the midst of that, it causes me to think about judgment language. Root or branches aren't going to survive this judgment. And the idea here, and it took me an expositor's Bible commentary to sort this out. The mention of roots indicates that the complete termination of growth It'd be one thing to think, oh, I see how the branches got burned. The, the, the forest fire devastated everything. But, but can you imagine a fire so strong that even the roots underground, gone? God's trying to give a picture of complete judgment of the wicked. And I'm telling you, this language, the audience of Malachi thought was for someone else. Yeah, someone ought to listen to that. God's trying to say, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you who go through the motions, you who don't really care, you who think that serving God's a burden, you who, you, you rob God, you do whatever you want with your morality, you, it's a burden for you to serve God, like maybe you come to church a little bit, it's all show, it, God didn't have your heart. Like he's just, he's talking to that crowd. He's trying to wake them up. Obviously he's not just trying to condemn them, he's trying to wake them up that they might turn be rescued. I think hell will be a shock to so many, to so many. Many very religious people, I think, on the day of judgment, they'd be shocked having lived assured that they were heading towards God, that their lives were righteous. And I'm just pausing long enough to go, could that be you? Could it be you? 
See, Malachi isn't unloving to bring such strong language to his audience. Isn't it the most loving thing you could do if you saw someone heading towards judgment to say, turn. If you saw someone heading towards death saying, there is a cure. Malachi is arresting the attention of his audience. God is using him in that way. And so in these same verses that talk about the destination of the wicked, he now talks about the destination of the righteous. And this is exciting. Jordan, as we were reviewing this message this week, said, Christians should think of judgment day with joy. I'm like, man, I never really thought about it that way. With joy. Look at this, verse two. But for you who fear my name, now, that's a minority group, but they're there, right? The ones he's writing down in his journal, those who fear his name. Listen to what he says. But you who fear my name, you're going to be like calves jumping on the day of judgment from the stall. Did you catch that? The son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. I have a category for dogs that are excited. My dog, super excited twice a day. That's when he eats, like super excited. But I didn't really have a category for calves. Back in the day, they wouldn't have had pet dogs, but they would have had a lot of calves. Did you know that calves, when they have been cooped up in some pen long enough and they're just about to be released, or you're gonna show a calf, you're just about to let it out of the trailer, or it's been in a winter, kind of in a barn for a long time, and now spring grass, and you've just opened doors. Do you know how they act? I found this little video clip. Corwin Nelson, one of our UF professors that attend Salt Church, just sent me a clip. And I thought, you just got to see, look at this guy. I mean, like, you think cows are boring. This thing can't get enough of life, you know? They just, there's his friends. It's like, me too. I'm on drugs. No, I don't, uh, they're not on drugs. They, they just calves act like that. My friend Stan says they'd run around, they'd like dig up the grass, and they'd run around, you know, to another place. they just dig up the They're just so happy. Get this picture in your mind. You're going to act like a calf. <laughs> a day is coming. A day is coming. The final day of judgment. Be bad news for the wicked, but for the righteous, you're going to be jumping and leaping like calves. A day is coming for those who fear the Lord when your faith will be sight. When sin will no longer challenge your affections for God. When every tear will be wiped away and replaced with a heart brimming to overflowing with joy. When we will behold the Savior face to face and praise him with intense joy, love, and affection, adoration, humility. A day is coming when we will be like a herd of calves released. Released from the constraints of our own flesh, of our own sin, released from the pens that seem to bind us and hold us back, released from the cares and concerns that weigh us down, released from the muck and mire that we go trudging through, released to run, to run free, and to be all that God intended us to be. A day is coming, God says, and I will have compassion and you will rejoice. This is the righteous. And before he closes the book, he gives some closing words, Malachi 4, 4 to 6. He says, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinances I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and 
the hearts of the children of their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. He says, remember, a day is coming. And this time, Malachi points to the first coming of Christ. He says, someone's going to come like Elijah. It actually, the Bible says, that's John the Baptist. He came and he had a ministry that was turning the hearts of fathers back to their kids and kids to their fathers. They were getting ready for the coming of Jesus. He's, he's pointing them to the coming of Christ to respond rightly to him. And he says, respond. You need to respond to that overall message. Otherwise, he says, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And that's his closing word. Curse. The closing word of the Old Testament. Curse. It's the last word they would hear for 400 years before the silence was broken through angels declaring that Jesus was coming as a savior of the world. Curse. I learned that Jews, when they read the book of Malachi, they read through verse 6, and then they go back and read verse five again because that verse doesn't end with the word curse. And they don't want to hear the last word of the book as curse. So they just kind of read it a little bit out of order. I asked Jonah in. he goes, it's, it might be that they do that. Curse. It is a curse to those who don't respond right to God. I want you to know that all of us start off on the path of the wicked, not the path of the righteous. David said in Psalm 51, I, I was sinful from birth. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. <laughs> you can't get any earlier than that. Sinful from, and you go, how can it be? Our babies, they're just innocent. Well, you've never been a parent then. Every parent knows. I didn't teach him to say no. I, which of us taught that kid to throw themselves down the ground, throw a fit? I never taught him that. Did you? Because we have a tendency towards godlessness from the very beginning. And we've only spent a lifetime, every last one of us, proving that that's our path. We start off on the path of the wicked. God says it is heading towards eternal judgment. The Bible calls it hell. Not to scare, but to, to arrest our attention. But there is only one who comes. As you zoom out of Malachi and look at the greater picture of the Bible, the big idea of the whole passage comes clear, right? This is how I wrote it. The difference between the wicked and the righteous is what people do with Jesus Christ. Because though we are on the path of the wicked, heading towards a very sure judgment, here comes the fork in the road. But it's not just a fork in the road. It is Jesus himself. And Jesus himself welcomes people off that path. The path of the righteous, we can only get on it if we respond rightly to Jesus Christ. Here's the good news. Though all of us were guilty of all of our sins, of what we've said and we've thought and what we've done, and every last one of us knows them and hopes that no one knows them all, Jesus Christ steps in, the only perfect one, sent from God, the Son of God himself, lived the perfect life we have never lived. But more than that, died on a brutal Roman cross. Why? The father was punishing his son on that cross for all the sins you and I have ever done. For all the things that made us rightly wicked, Jesus was absorbing wrath so that we could respond to the gospel. And the gospel is simply this, that if you turn to Jesus, you put your trust that he lived the perfect life for you and died the death you deserve, you can get off the path of the wicked and be forgiven by God, 
Have your name written in the book of life. Have the hope of heaven in your heart. Begin a new relationship. You might be here thinking I'm talking to someone else. Thinking, I hope someone else hears this. I thought the same thing until the closing of the message where I yielded my life to Christ as a senior in high school. I thought John Duncan must be speaking to someone else. Is anyone else listening? And then God had my attention. And I realized I need to be forgiven. I'm guilty. I deserve God's judgment. It's not that I'm good and maybe God's good. No, I'm guilty. And God is so good to send Jesus for me. And I reached out in faith. And I said, Jesus, thank you for doing what you did for me. Would you now be my savior? Would you forgive me of all my sins? Rescue me from the path of judgment that I deserve. And make me your own. Write my name in the book of heaven. And come into my life. I surrender myself to you. Maybe that's you this morning. This is the Jesus we celebrate. I would encourage you, don't leave here this morning before you do business with God. Before you transfer your trust from yourself, very bad object of trust, to Jesus Christ, who can forgive you. We're heading into a time of communion right now. This is the symbol of bread and juice that Jesus gave to his disciples the night before he was crucified. The band's going to come back on up. Guys, in just a few minutes, we are going to celebrate this symbol of Christ's death for us. The bread was something he used on the closing night of his life on earth. And he says, this bread, and he broke it. He says, it's broken for you. It's like my body, broken. And he said, take this and do this in remembrance of him. When we take the bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. And he passed around a cup saying, this cup, it's my blood. It's a, it's a picture of his blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And they all took from the cup. We celebrate Jesus this morning. If you're not a Christ follower, this isn't for you. And if you are a Christ follower and you're living in blatant disregard towards the Lord in some way, don't take communion. Deal with sin first and then come to the table of communion. There's a gluten-free station right here, new room, right? There's a station in the back and there's one in the, in the far back of that area. When you're ready to, come and take communion. Can we be a church that lives with the regard of God's name, so heavy on our hearts. We want him honored and pleased that we take notice, that God takes notice of us. He sees us from heaven. Can we be a church that so delights in the gospel that we are empowered by God to go and share this life-saving message with others? Can we be a church that's awake and alive, powerful and used of God to bring change to these campuses and this community to be salt and light in this fallen world. Let's pray. Oh God, as we turn towards communion, we turn towards you, Jesus. We take this symbol as a reminder of what you did to rescue us from the path of the wicked. We're so deceived. I thought for a long time, I'm not on that wrong path. Oh God, how had I convinced myself that some spotty church attendance and basically being a little bit better than some others I could point myself to would make me holy in your sight. God, please forgive our arrogance. And this morning, God, I pray that someone here, maybe many, men and women, would be humbled, would be struck by your spirit, 
and would be ready to transfer their lives to you, would be ready to say, God, please forgive me. I want to get off the path of the wicked. I want to be rescued this morning. Be my savior. Save me from my judgment. I put my trust in you. We pray in your name.